You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Tim, and I will be your host, and sitting with me is Renee. How you doing, Renee? Hey, what's up? So we are in the Soundcrafter studio and we have brought together a panel of uh, esteemed colleagues to talk about kind of Atmos for the rest of us. We're going to word it that way. We all know about uh, Skywalker's work with Atmos on the big tentpole films and we know about how Warner Brothers and Sony in LA are all doing Atmos. But today we're going to try and talk about Atmos on uh, without using the word in a derogatory sense, smaller projects in maybe not physically smaller rooms, but smaller facilities. So uh, with me, we have Renee, who works at Dallas Audio Post. We all know Renee, and Dallas Audio Post recently did a big uh, Atmos install. Did the big Atmos upgrade. That happened in 2019, and it took months. It was, it was a big deal. It was a big process, I guess. Yeah, so we're going to talk about that process and maybe see if we can find some do's and don'ts for the listeners to maybe <laughs> avoid some of the pitfalls that uh, others have fallen into. Also joining us today is Corey Pereira. Corey is the owner and creative director of Solarity Sound, a small post-production company based in Austin, Texas, where he's worked on everything from student films to features to immersive audio. He's in the final stages of upgrading his space for Atmos. Corey, can you tell us a bit about the work you've been doing lately? Sure. So at Solarity, we kind of do a smattering of projects, kind of whatever comes in the door is what we work on that day. Um, I also have the good fortune of also working here at Soundcrafter. Uh, so I've worked on Linklater's last four films. We do a lot of television on uh, some really cool independent films. Uh, on top of that, when I'm not working in film, I'm actually teaching over at the University of Texas. And this last semester, I also taught down at Texas State University as a guest lecturer. So you have no free time. Not so much. Enough to be here today with you. <laughs> Thank you for making the time. We also have joining us Nicole Oranger. Nicole is soon to be graduate of Texas State University's sound recording technology program. She freelances as a location and post-production mixer of various student films and Indian film Indian films. Yes. Indie films. Hollywood. <laughs> she has written and directed two of her own short films, which are about to be mixed in Atmos for her capstone project. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So what, what are these two films that you've written and directed? Um, I tend to write dramas, so they're kind of, they're little short dramas. Um, and luckily, my professor at our studio is very uh, on top of the game, and so he installed Atmos, so I'm very lucky to get the opportunity to learn to mix while I'm in school in Atmos, so that's incredible. That nice. makes me very jealous. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, and finally joining us today, we have Glenn Eanes. In addition to editing and mixing sound on many narrative and documentary features, Glenn has served as the re-recording mixer on well over 100 episodes of television. Welcome, Glenn. Uh, tell us a bit about some of these television shows. Uh, most of the stuff we get here in Austin, I, I work primarily out of Soundcrafter, even though I do, I do some freelance stuff on my own, um, are reality TV, docu-reality kind of shows, uh, sports shows, fat people shows, those kinds of things. Um, but uh, I've also done narrative films and documentary work and things like that. I primarily am a re-recording mixer and Foley mixer. So when we talk about Atmos, why are you all interested in getting into it? Corey, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So Glenn and I actually went out to L.A. Uh, the last two years to attend the Mix Sound for Film event. And two years ago, in 2018, I went out there and had the good fortune to talk to the folks from Avid and talk to the folks from Dolby and really realized that something was happening and that this format was actually going to stick around. 
So that was in October. Early November, I started plotting my plan to upgrade my home studio to Atmos, which was getting out a piece of paper and figuring out what that would actually take. Um, I would say luckily, the process has gone a lot slower than I've initially intended it to go. <laughs> uh, but in that delay, I think it's kind of shaped the way I set up my studio. Uh, and I'll hopefully be finishing it here in the next month or two. Yeah, and the, the technology has changed since you started as well yep. to actually ah. make things easier for you. Yep. And cheaper. Yeah, and yep. cheaper, <laughs> which is a good thing for smaller studios. Yep. And I'm sure we might get into the technical part of it later, but originally when I was looking at it, you have to have an HDX2 system. I was going to have to have an RMU and a whole separate computer. Mm -hmm. And now it's evolved to the point that with the production toolkit, uh, you can actually have the time alignment that was missing before. So, well, if I'm working on a big film, I'm going to come over to Soundcrafter. We're going to go out to L.A. to finish it. But for the lower budget things, I can now work natively in Atmos. And using a one system setup, I can actually print out... Uh, the masters at home on my computer, which is huge. And as, just as far as an impetus for Dallas Audio Post, I mean, it's just, just just fundamentally the fact that Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and everybody else has Atmos as their baseline deliverable these days. Absolutely. They consider yeah. 5.1 and 7.1 to be legacy formats, and they consider Atmos to be like your primary deliverable. Yeah. So to do work in television at all anymore, you kind of have to be able to do it. Yeah, and that's what is making everybody so interested in this. The people who are thinking, you know, maybe I'll wait longer are like, no, I've got to get on this now. Yeah. So what's the first step in getting on it? I mean, you got you to spec your system, right? Yeah, um, a lot of reading. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of technical information you kind of have to absorb. And then, yeah, specking your system, making sure you have the right equipment or purchasing the right equipment to do it. And some of that's just research on, you know, the Avid site and, and on the Dolby site. And yeah, they the have the, what, the Dart, is it the Dart, the tool that they have where you can spec your room, you put in your room yeah. size and everything like that. But an important part is kind of what we're doing here, which is to go talk to people that have gone through the process and sure. just figure out what the heck is coming because it's, it's not as easy as putting up more speakers. There's, there's more Absolutely. to it than that. Yeah, it's a, a lot of, I've, I used to work in the tech industry and it's a lot of like those IT skills kind of coming mm -hmm. back and being, especially in smaller studios, having to be the person who knows how to run all the equipment, how to troubleshoot all the equipment and everything like that, which the bigger studios hire people specifically to do. They yeah. have a whole department. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so Nicole, as someone who's going through school, how are you finding, is it, are your professors able to teach Atmos? Do they know, like, are they learning it as you're learning it? or? Yes, they don't know anything about it. So when I told him, he, he installed it, and I told him, well, this is perfect. I can do this for my capstone project. I can mix it in Atmos. And his first words were, awesome, you'll have to teach me how to. <laughs> and I was, so from the start, I was like, okay, this will be an experience. Um, but luckily, I met Corey through one of my classes because he taught one of our classes. And so I'll have some help. I'll have some yeah. help. But yeah, it's definitely been a lot of looking up YouTube videos and reading stuff online and kind of just, Corey just came down and fixed our I.O. So now we can actually do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it'll just be a lot of getting in there and messing around. And kind of as we were talking about a second ago, you know, the, the Atmos technology and the spec is continuing to change and evolve. I mean, when we installed a year ago, it's different than what it is now. And yeah. so yeah. I have no idea, like we could not have at Dallas Audio Post done a, a DIY upgrade. We had to consult basically with Dolby and with our architect and with Meyer Sound. And we had to pay a lot of people, a lot of different people, a lot of money to come in and design and implement the actual upgrade. Um, 
I, I imagine that's a little bit different now, right? Yeah, I mean, we at Soundcrafter were in a bit of a similar boat. When we had this studio built, we had this room built for what we thought would be required in terms of a room for Atmos at that time. But like we've been talking about, the Atmos stuff has changed from that period till now. So we're we're having to do a little bit more construction to get this room set up. But luckily, it's not that much more construction. Um, you know, we're going to have to add another speaker to the back wall and getting all the speakers installed in the ceiling and that kind of thing. But we already have mountains for most of the speakers on the ceiling. So, uh, and the positioning of the speakers was thought out ahead of time too. So mm-hmm. we're not having to totally rip the room apart, which is, which is an excellent thing. We had to rip our room apart. <laughs> <laughs> well, and some of that was because our room was built, our room was designed and built, I think the year before that most spec came out. And what you have to go through is is you have to get drawings put together and you have to send them to Dolby and then Dolby has to sign off on it um, if they're going to actually um, certify the room. And so they've got their spreadsheets and they've got some very kind of rote static formulas about how things should look. The problem with our room is that their formula put our speakers out in the hallway. <laughs> That's an issue. <laughs> <laughs> so there's always there's always a human element, right? There's always some negotiation that you end up having to do with Dolby to be like, hey, this is the plan. Do you feel like this is going to work? And Dolby's also less inclined right now to do dual purpose certifications. In other words, they don't want to certify the same room for both theatrical and for home theater. Mm-hmm. They, but lots and lots of rooms are being put up all over all over the planet that do do both. And so Dolby's kind of having to make a decision on how many of those they're going to certify in both directions. It didn't make sense for us to only go with one certification um, because it's, it was important for us to be able to do theatrical release Dolby print masters, you know, given the fact that there's just not a lot of stages that are capable of that in our part of the world. Yeah. So it's something that, that we felt was important. But the majority of our work was going to be home theater release. And, you know, with home theater release, you don't, it doesn't require somebody on Dolby's payroll to fly over to our place and print master, um, which is the case with theatrical. Mm-hmm. So we had to have both and they both had to be in the same room. And eventually we just kind of like, we had to put it to Dolby that, hey, this, this has to go down this way or it's not going to go down at all. And eventually we, we mapped out a plan with regards to speaker placement and everything else to where they were going to be okay with it. But it took a lot of wrangling. Um, between Dolby and Meyer Sound and Francis Manzella, our architect, to get everybody on the same page before even the first you know nail got driven. So yeah, yeah, and for the um, the theatrical atmos, just the sheer cubic cubic foot yeah. space requirements of the rooms makes it prohibitive for a lot of studios. Mm-hmm. So what what lessons have you learned? Well, like there's there's a lot, right? But, but a there's, lot, there's, yeah. There's a bunch of, of different places to, to learn lessons, like with regards to the planning and the execution, but that's not even getting into the actual content creation and mixing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of room stuff, stupid things like, you know, make sure that your ceiling speakers are not casting shadows on the projector. Yeah. <laughs> like if your room wasn't designed for that in the first place, that's a, a real potential issue that we, you might have. We had a scare with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, because we had to hang trusses and we had to hang speakers in front of that projector and that we had to we had to basically go into our box and raise the projector up and shoot the angle down a little bit more just so it could clear those speakers. Yeah. Yeah, see, that's something that no one's thinking about when they're starting to dip their toe in this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. No. <laughs> yeah. 
So you, Corey, you're in your home studio are yes. doing this. How are you tearing your home apart and not, uh, and everyone else in the home being okay with this? Uh, very carefully, which is probably why it's taken a little longer than I've liked. Um, but one thing that I think is really nice kind of doing it in the DIY route that I'm kind of taking a completely opposite approach <laughs> uh, from what y'all are doing or what we're doing here at Soundcrafter uh, is that I had some good conversations with the folks at Dolby and got good direction on making sure my room did actually meet the volume spec for home theater certification, but I'm not necessarily going through the process. So as far as me for gear, I decided to go with all JBL Harman products, which just made it a little bit easier that I could talk to the people over at JBL and they can point me in the right direction and make sure that yes, on the Dolby spec sheet, it says this gear will work, but then I can actually talk to the engineers over at JBL to see how it'll all fit together. Mm -hmm. So for me, one big consideration was like how to have 11 speakers in your home office without having to do massive electrical work. So one of the big decisions I made is that I wanted to have passive speakers uh, for the surrounds and overheads. So I decided to go with the JBL 7 series speakers. So my LCR powered the 708Ps, but for the surrounds and the overheads, I went with the 705Is, which are passive. So the nice thing is they're voiced the same, but I just had to run a speaker cable. So for me, it's getting speaker cables up there. I can pull cables. Um, I've worked in AV before. You poke some <laughs> holes and, uh, you know, swear a little bit, and eventually it'll work. Uh, so I'm capable of doing that, and that seemed a lot easier than having to have, like, electrical ports where all the speakers were going to go. It's true. That's one of those considerations you don't <clears> think of. You're like, damn, i got to run power to all of the speakers in this room. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right, and, oh, yeah. and that's why I ended up on the 7 Series, because for me, tuning-wise, I wanted something that was voiced very similar. They all sound the same. They Surprisingly, the little ones sound very similar to the large ones. And then I went with their Intonato box for tuning. Because again, it worked in the ecosystem. And then I used the Crown DCI 8300N as an amplifier. And that will connect actually to the Intonato through like a single Ethernet cable. So for me, it was just like trying to find the easiest way to get to Atmos. Yeah. And again, luckily with the production toolkit, letting you actually do masters and not having to have the RMU, it really cut down on my gear that I have an HD native card and an old cheese grater Mac that you know, has 12 cores and I, you know, shoved, I think, 96 gigs of RAM in and an SSD and it actually runs really well. You can add on a couple of voice packs. You can have the RMU running on the same computer and it all works. Yeah. So for me, it's just like getting it down to one 12-space rack worth of gear and then trying to make the wiring as simple as possible. So I've wired up the surrounds next to the overheads. I have little holes poked and just need to get it from A to B and have enough downtime between everything else I do to actually do it. But for me, it was just like finding the easiest solution to get there. Because ultimately, if I work on something big enough, I'm going to come here to Soundcrafter, could book time at Dallas Audio Post, or go out to LA and find a studio to do the final. So, Are you going to fly a sub in your surrounds? I am not. So I'm actually base managing the overheads. And then I have one sub up front, which is like on the cusp of being enough. Mm -hmm. um, it's a pretty small room. It's 11 by 14 and about nine and a half feet tall. If you can figure out a way to get full frequency behind you, it's yeah. going to make a difference. Yeah, and I know that's one thing that Tom, yeah, that's, the that's owner here at Soundcrafter, subs up in the. You have to. Yeah, it's yeah it's like, putting... that's one of the you know that's one of the great advancements that Atmos really brings to the table is full frequency um, height and surround. Mm -hmm. You know, if you go watch Endgame or whatever, and you have giant spaceships flying over the top of you and you feel the low end. Like, it's a weird thing. You actually do perceive mm -hmm. the low end behind you. Mm -hmm. um, and that's 
it ends up being like one of the most compelling reasons to even do anything in Atmos in the first place. Yeah, is sure. that full frequency behind you? Yeah. Well, um, also shout out to Brittany Pereira, Corey's wife, who is allowing him to install all of that in the house. <laughs> <laughs> She's so, mostly going along yeah. with it. <laughs> She's being supportive. So, and, and again, like luckily, Glenn and I went out to the mix event in LA in September this year. And part of what we did while we were out there is actually book some studio tours. So we went to the dub stage and talked to Marty, and he showed us that yeah. room. Marty Humphreys. Yes. Yeah, and he's it, fantastic. He also consulted with us. Yeah. yeah, he's great. And again, like he's fantastic and he has an amazing room. So part of it was like going into that space and understanding the whole scope of what you're doing and then going over to the Sony lot and hearing demos from all these great sound crews of what Atmos can be. So I think definitely in my personal experience, the wife saw that and, you know, really gets yeah, we took what's our, happening. we took our wives along to that, the mm-hmm. tour of the, the dub stage. And uh, to be honest, Marty has like the best sounding Atmos room that I've heard personally. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. His his room is also hyper flexible. He can do way more than even than Atmos. He's got Absolutely. all of the other immersive forms. Oh yeah, Atmos twelve o six o. I think yeah. the whole gambit. TTSX yeah. and oh, Aura three yeah. D and everything. Yeah, he has like yeah. forty nine speakers in that room. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. It's and a he lot of an subs. I don't even know how many subs. God, yeah. And and he'll flip from format to format like oh yeah. on an iPad. Yeah. It's amazing. Hmm. Yeah. So something I wanted to ask about that is also. I don't think kind of figured out yet is on the exact opposite end of the spectrum. Once you've spent all this money, you've built the room, you've installed the speakers, are clients willing to pay more or do they want to pay the same price and just get Atmos? I mean, clients are always going to want to pay this, the same price well, or less. I guess if they not can. what they want to do. Yes. Are we well, going to be able to charge well, them for And that? honestly, I will kind of say, like, at the last Mix event, that was a topic that came up. And officially, you're not supposed to charge more for your room when you're mixing Atmos. The idea is if your room happens to have Atmos, that's what you charge for the room. I think the only thing that may factor in is just, like, more mix time to kind of deal with the minutiae of deciding in practice, how and when to pan Atmos takes things. Longer. Yeah. But... I know something that Glenn and I are big proponents of is just starting to mix an Atmos. So, for example, I'm supervising a feature this coming year, and it's a drama. It doesn't necessarily need to be an Atmos, but I'm choosing to do it natively in Atmos just to get into the flow of it. Mm-hmm. And if you become part of that, it, it's easier to just do it in Atmos. And there are definitely a lot future of advantages. Future-proof as well. Exactly. Yeah, future-proof. Yeah. And again, like, you never know. They might sell on Netflix, and they may need an Atmos mix, so why not do the Atmos mix? And then make the 5.1, make the 7.1, make the stereo that they actually need. But I think just having that in your back pocket yeah. is something that I used to do a lot like when I moved from working in stereo to 5.1. That at some point I just did everything in 5.1 even though they needed a stereo and I gave them a stereo mix. Because six months later they call up and in a panic need a 5.1 mix. So I could be like, oh, it's no problem. We did a 5.1 mix. I just didn't give it to you. Mm-hmm. You can just spit it out. Yeah, we mix our TV in five uh, one and crash it down to to stereo as needed. Um, even though most of the deliveries are in stereo, but sometimes they've come back to us back in the day when they released DVDs and said, "Hey, we're doing a DVD release and we can do five one," and we had all those mixes on hand. So I think moving away from the quote unquote legacy formats, which is what we've all been working in and are still currently working in, into Atmos is a huge deal and. I think part of it, particularly for low-budget projects, is going to fall on us to educate our clients about what Atmos can do for them mm-hmm. and get those clients, you know, excited about Atmos and used to using Atmos so we can continue working with them in Atmos because I think s- telling stories using Atmos is, it's amazing. It's an amazing tool 
for us to work with. I feel like we're still waiting on the killer app for Atmos, and I think it's going to really rely on headphone consumption. Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. So yeah. Dolby has a – they have a codec where, you know, you can feed it an Atmos mix, and it will do the HRT. Well, it won't do, it won't do HRT. It's a binaural. It'll, it'll do yeah, a binaural, binaural translation of the mix, mm-hmm. and it works, right? The problem is the technology is not very easily accessible. The only place where you can actually run an Atmos mix through that binaural decoder is like on a PC or with specific software or on an Xbox. Um, I think the newer iPhones are starting to have it. Yeah, I think the 11. I think the 11 is going to have it. If that gets widespread adoption and people start actually being able to experience Atmos mixes in headphones, I think that's going to be a And those are just regular headphones. Regular headphones. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all in the actual device that's going to do the decoding for I think that'll be a sea change because, I mean, the... Just the math and the technology of that has come light years. So I, in my house, I have a, just a stereo setup for my um, receiver. Like I have a stereo receiver with two big-ass speakers, and I don't have a surround setup in my house. But the receiver's got tech in it that it shoots the room, and it can make a spaceship fly over my head just by, just by pre-sending things out. Um, and it works. Works great. You know? Who knew? Yeah. Watching Star Wars on the Mandalorians, <laughs> coming over my head. It's awesome. <laughs> and they have Atmos home theater sound bars with up-firing speakers and yeah. all kinds of stuff. So I think that uh, Dolby is making a huge push to get Atmos in every device that they can. And uh, when I worked in the tech industry a long time ago, I worked in an audio company. We made audio chips. And, I mean, even at that time, we were partnering with Dolby. So, you know, they always are trying to get their technologies into every device they can, and that will affect us. Yeah, and it's not necessarily just even Atmos, but any of these immersive formats, if they—they're not going to necessarily require immersive installs to be consumed. No, Um, and that's 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 really why. Well, and that's really object object object-based formats. Yeah, really give you that capability to you know mix it down or crash it down to like a binaural and still get spatialization, Mm -hmm. which is great. I mean, that's one of the things that I'm really excited about with this. Yep. So I think it's a lot more agnostic, too, that they have, like, Amazon Echoes that support it, that you mix in that format and it can play on any device. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I feel like that's the biggest concern about people, like, should I spend all this money to get this equipment and get it into my room, is why would I mix something in Atmos if people can't listen to it? Mm-hmm. But I don't think people understand that the capabilities of Atmos, at least from, from what I've watched and what I've heard, is that even the down mixes from Atmos are more capable than what the legacy mixes can do. Yeah. And, and all these newer improvements with the phones and stuff, like maybe we can start listening in Atmos. Yeah, and I think Dolby is going to make a big push on the headphone front because they are starting to push it into music and people are mixing yep. music in Atmos now, and that's mostly consumed through headphones. Yep. So that technology, I think, will only get better. Well, we were doing our install um, you know, well, I, I guess so. So Roy, who's our lead mixer, does a lot of you know television mixes as well, and he'll do the same thing. He mixes them in five one, and then crashes them down to stereo when there's a stereo delivery format. His opinion of his stereo mixes that come from five one is that they're better mixes than when they're stereo native, because he he, he can place things in place um, in a way that translates well, right? Um, Brian Pennington, who's the who's the Dolby guy that was in, um, in installing with us, has a similar mentality with regards to Atmos native going down to five one. Mm-hmm. Um, no. I don't yeah, know. I don't know if that translates all the way down to stereo, all the way down to the speaker off of your phone mono. <laughs> but at least from Atmos to five one, that's 
Brian Pennington from Atmos, that's his opinion is that yeah. if you do it in Atmos native, it's, it's going to give you a better 5.1 mix than if you do 5.1 yeah. native. And at the CAS or CAS MPSE mix event, I just say CAS because I'm a CAS member. Corey's a MPSE member. And <laughs> so, yeah, how that works out. But at the mix event, we that's what all the mixers who've been using it for a long time have been saying. Like the 5.1 crash down from Atmos in a lot of cases sounds better yeah. than just a natively mixed 5.1. However, they're doing that math for the spatialization. Just gives you something different that you can't do in native 5.1. Well, I think it's fundamentally it's it's just because you can you've got more resolution with regards to where you're p- putting things, and yeah. so because you have more resolution, you just end up making better decisions, or you end up making more nuanced decisions. Yeah, and I mm-hmm. think that translates right. So yeah, yeah, and, and they were saying you know the more speakers in your room you can get when you're mixing Atmos, the better because yeah. it does give you that resolution and the nuance. So how much longer does it add to a mix? If, if I'm going to do a film that's going to take me uh, five days mix in a 5.1, what, what am I adding to that to make get an Atmos? It, d- it depends entirely on your film. It depends on how much stuff you're moving around, right? Because if, or, or at least how much stuff you're putting out in space. Because you do have to organize your session in such a way that you're assigning stuff to tracks to object tracks. And then you have to go in and in automation pan the track. And you got to do that almost like track by track, right? So you can't like take a group of things and do a thing. So if I have a plane flying overhead and that plane is made up of seven sounds, I've got to pan each of those seven individually. Mm -hmm. Is there a way to copy and paste so they move at the same time? Nope. Oh, boy. (laughs) I mean, one thing I have found, and this is something I tend to be a little more strategic as far as like how I mix because I usually work on lower budget things and – don't have a lot of time. So what I'll usually do when I'm doing sound design, I'll essentially pre-dub some of my effects. So if I know five or six things are going to go together and I feel really good about them, I'll actually crash them down to a single element so that when I do start panning things, I only have to worry about one thing. Or if it's something that's a little more nuanced, I might split it out to maybe two or three sounds. So I'll take those 10, 12, 14 sounds and make the decision as the designer who's also the mixer to make it one track that I have to deal with. So that helps a little bit. Uh, well, it helps a lot. Yeah. I've, uh, I've found that. So just in some of our just sound design experiments, right, it's like, hey, we got we got Atmos now. Let's make some stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we you know, I did a thing where, yeah, I had, you know, 15 things kind of going all over. And then I did I had, like, later in the same piece, I had just one big thing that did did, did a big move because the big thing was full frequency and, and, and because you get full frequency in Atmos, mm-hmm. I was able to take, you know, a stereo track and just make it sound huge. And it, the composite of something that was built from 10 tracks didn't sound necessarily any different, I guess. Or sure. It wasn't, you know, if I'm not doing different panning things, then... Yeah. If it moves as one object. If it moves as one object, then just crash it down. And yeah. I know yeah. definitely as far as like object allocation, one thing I have done, I actually have a hybrid of some of them are actually sending a stereo and some are mono. Yeah. So that does kind of help at least... You don't have to necessarily just choose stereo, just choose mono like the templates are. You can kind of mix those up a little bit. Yeah, Yeah, and I think that is really one kind of big workflow change is just that preparation and doing, like making sure you have all of your objects, object tracks allocated to certain groups that you need, your dialogue effects and music music and all that kind of stuff. Planning all that ahead makes for a much smoother mix. Yep. Did you get all the way through an Atmos mix yet? No. No. Because our room was under construction basically all semester until we had his class, and he just fixed the I.O. as the semester ended. So, so we're going to have to revisit it. <laughs> we're going to have to revisit it. Yeah. But 
I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> I've got the knowledge now. Now I just have to do it. So you also do a lot of music. Mm-hmm. Are you going to start mixing music in Amos? Um, I, I haven't recorded anything recently, but um, one of my friends, she ha- is doing a lot of live sessions. So I was thinking about bringing up to her, getting one of those 360 cameras and possibly doing a session in that and then putting that in Atmos. Yeah. I think yeah. that would be really, really cool for people to watch. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Put up an ambisonics mic. Yeah, we have one too. Yeah. We have one too. I've, I've done one experiment where I took an ambisonics recording and tried to fold it all the way out. And it was the, with the Sennheiser Ambia, which is not my favorite ambisonics mic. I like the. Yeah, I have one of those too. <laughs> it's a good price point. Well, honestly, I like, I like the road one. Well, actually, I like the Soundfield one best. I, sure. haven't, I haven't been able to AB the Soundfield versus when Rode bought, bought that mic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I like that mic a lot better. Um, and it costs less than. Yeah, unfortunately, I bought it before it was out. So. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I don't have one either. <laughs> <laughs> but I've, I've, I've done the up mix into Atmos and I didn't love it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what there's. What was the recording of? Um, it was a crowd. That's crowd. what I do. I record crowds. <laughs> so I find like uh, the ambisonic work I have done I've done some 360 um, videos mm-hmm. and I'll start with the ambisonic track and then pepper in things so we have a fantastic Foley artist here in town Susan Fitzsimon that works out of actually this room also doubles as a Foley stage and I worked on a 360 video so I got some ambisonic recordings as kind of a bed but then had Susan come in and we actually recorded Foley for the 360 video and like point sourced chose things and actually built it up from there. Yeah. So I think that helps too. Like I like the energy you have, that things are definitely moving. Yeah. But then I'd pick out the things that aren't really tracking right in the sound field and then we'd fully them or go into the effects library and just like build up this whole bed yeah. underneath it. I think first order ambisonics can upmix fairly okay, but it's limited. I think you, you get you mm-hmm. get further than five one and it starts really falling apart. Yeah, the image is just yeah. a little fuzzy. Yeah. So as the person at the table who has limited, well, not even limited, zero Atmos experience, the thing that I'm completely baffled by and do not understand is monitoring and getting your levels. Because <laughs> <laughs> you still have to hit spec. Yeah. But you're not, the, not everything's going through your meters, right? Right. Yeah, you have, so from, uh, again, I haven't delivered a show yet in Atmos. Uh, but from everybody I've talked to, they say you pretty much do your crash downs and then you do you run it through like you measure your LM so or you're something only like that. Metering, getting yeah, your measurement from yeah. The because from for the spec, I believe for like Netflix's, you you do your le, your metering on like the five one crash down. Yeah, okay. and that's what's required. Measure, and and, yeah. and the the Dolby encoders will auto do the five one. Like you don't have to yeah. do any additional routing; it'll just do it. And they have tech built in that it won't actually clip. Yeah. So it kind of makes sure it doesn't clip. You measure the crash down. If you need to adjust that, you can. Yeah. Um, I know like NewGen makes the LM Correct as a tool. If you mm-hmm. don't necessarily have time to go back, you can adjust your crash downs a little bit. Then as far as Atmos spec, I mean, it's just like anything else. You set your room to the right level. Yep. You mix it yep. to where it sounds good. Right. And you assume it's right. And I think definitely Netflix, there's a little bit of latitude, at least on the Atmos mix, that yeah. if you listen to it in a room and it sounds good and it everybody's happy, then you're okay. Yeah. The real mind-bending part is the stems. Mm. Yeah, the, yeah, it's all mind-bending. Especially for TV where you have to deliver dipped and non-dipped and yes. all of that, that becomes uh, a bit problematic. Heats up a lot of your objects, just yeah. having all those groups. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you can take objects and route them around to different places, right? And so that's kind of how you do it. 
Um, <laughs> so, um, well, and actually, I think Netflix, I could be wrong on this, um, but I think Netflix only requires stems in 5.1 or 7.1. Uh, I don't think they require Atmos stems. Mm-hmm. Right. I, isn't the Atmos, the Atmos uh, master file is a deliverable, right? Yes. And then they require a 5.1 yep. and a 7.1. It's probably them getting the Atmos deliverable, too. They can drop it into Pro Tools and actually bust out all your objects. So if they needed to go back in and remix it, they actually have the latitude to have your dialogue 7.1 or 7.1.2, your effects and music split out, anything you put in the bed, and then all your objects, they could technically go in and redo your work. Which is what, I mean, one of the attractive things about the technology for people like Netflix or Amazon. They can do all the crash downs themselves as long as they have an RMU. So the deliverable is, it's a single file that includes all the audio and all the panning data. And basically, mm-hmm. it's, it's like the Atmos, like, mix session almost entirely. All the, all the data it's and like all the data. It's a data shell around. It's a data shell around yeah. the, the source audio. And you, they can just take that and break it all the way back out. It's actually kind of terrifying at the same time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are they going to do with that new freedom? They're going yeah. to mess things up. But <laughs> yeah, it's, sometimes it's, it's tough to watch uh, your mixes air. Oof. Yeah. Because they do things in the pathway and stuff like that. But with streaming, it's uh, it's a little truer than it used to be on broadcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's your greatest, let's go around the table, what's your greatest uh, triumph slash uh, pitfall of Atmos so far? Atmos. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think just like the first time that you get a session up and you start moving things around, you feel like a kid again. Like that, that, that sense really gets you excited to use the format more and to really try and tell stories with it. It's kind of like, I was telling Corey uh, I, earlier today, like when I went to see Avatar in 3D and it, it, was, it was a bit different because it was using 3D in a, a different way than kind of that gimmicky things coming out at you. It's like looking through a window into a world. And to me, that's what Atmos feels like when you watch a movie. It pulls you into the movie more because of the way that things are placed and drape around you. And that's what's really exciting. Yeah. To to me, it's it's that full frequency surround. Because you can't do that in any other format, you can't make make your mind believe that a real spaceship is flying over your head if you don't hear the low end behind you. Mm -hmm. Atmos gives you the low end behind you. It forces you to hang a sub up in the ceiling behind you. that's what's cool. Yeah. I mean, because we really hear with our bodies, like our entire bodies as well as our ears. So Yeah. I think um, a really cool thing, as a writer, knowing that Atmos was going to be put in, I specifically wrote a scene that I knew I could really implement it. So it's, it's really dark, but there's a scene. It's the point of view of this little girl as she's drowning. So she jumps in the pool. And so I'm just imagining the soundscapes and the things I can do with Atmos that it would still sound really cool in surround. But in Atmos, you really get to play with that um, vertical, the vertical panning yeah. that you can't do in surround. So that'll be really fun. Mm-hmm. And movies like like the Aeronauts, when you have all the rigging and everything of that balloon above your head, <laughs> that's just awesome. Yeah, that's that was really impressive. Yeah. Uh, so for me, I think the biggest moment that kind of pushed me into Atmos was I went and saw Ready Player One at a Brendan Theater while we were in Vegas. We went to Vegas. The show I wanted to see was Ready Player One in Atmos. And I went in like expecting to be excited and then that's I w- all people go to Vegas for yeah I'm that sound nerd uh, so I get there and I watch it and it it 
gave me what I wanted, what I thought I was actually going to get out of it. It gave me this other latitude as a mixer that I have other places you can place objects. You have really point sourcey ability to pull the music just a little bit off the screen or just a little into the overheads, and it just opens up the sonic space. And then again, going to the mix of van a couple of years ago just sold it for me. I was like, this is it. I'm all in. As far as pitfalls, um, definitely one thing that happens to me is there's an optical illusion in the panner where when things are all the way on the ground, they're not on the ground. The speakers are still above your head. Mm -hmm. So your mind is telling you that I'm panning things on the ground, but I'm not. I'm still above my head. Um, so when I push up, I'm just pushing up. Um, but I'm starting above my head. And so there's, there's just kind of a, a visual thing that it took me a minute to get over. And the other thing is your ceiling speakers and your, and, your, and your rear wall speakers are narrower by definition in the space than your, than your wall speakers. So, so not I, frequency, like actual placement on the walls. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got, you got speakers on the walls behind you that are narrower than the speakers on the side walls, right? Mm -hmm. You've got speakers on the ceiling that are narrower than mm -hmm. your speakers on the side wall. So what happens when you take a sound and you pan it up is you're also panning it in. Mm -hmm. And you have to keep that in your head as you, as you use that height. Um, so, you know, we were talking to Gary Bourgeois about how he does Atmos. Yep. Um, and, and a lot of what he was talking about was he likes to push all the music. I think Brian Pennington was telling me about someone else that does this as well. Take all the music and don't put any of it in the height. Don't put any of it in the back. Just put it on the walls and use the height in the back for, for sound effects. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the way you can best utilize the width of the space. And in terms of uh, the install process, any major hints for anyone that might be about to go on this journey? I mean, don't start drinking. <laughs> <laughs> I'd uh, say measure twice, cut once. Yeah. Uh, definitely surround speaker placement is something that I made a decision and then had to move it. So now yeah. you have to make new holes and pull more cable. Yeah. So. Be aware of how many channels of audio you need to transfer between machines and really like make sure you have the equipment yes. to do that. Yeah, we had to put a massive dual Matty rig in to, to um, get all the channels back and forth for the theatrical yeah. rig. For um, sure. So as far as waiting, I know that's one nice thing in Soundcrafter, we're actually going Dante. So again, waiting a couple of years makes yeah. it just a little bit easier. Although Dante's got its own limitations. So Dante can't do 32-bit. Um, Dante hmm. um, doesn't like going north of 48K. So, you know, in, in film mixing contests, that's usually not an issue. Sure, yeah. Uh, today. <laughs> True. For now. True. You know. With that said, I mean our our studio's Dante all the way over the place. So yeah. um, but we're running Maddie in the in the actual um from, from the box actual to box. Yeah. So we've got the MTRX box as our as our main IO and we're running from that to the Dolby RMU and back. Mm -hmm. And for the theatrical RMU, is it Maddie only? I'm not familiar with the theatrical RMU. Uh I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I think it is. Okay. Um although I think it was. Who knows what it is now? They, yeah. they keep updating yeah. it. And the other thing is like it's the the technical feat of loading something up and playing it back is is still really insane. You've got multiple computers going simultaneously all talking to each other sample accurately and sometimes it doesn't work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, sometimes you, you do have to still give yourself, at least we do, a, a chunk of time before an Atmos session to make sure that everything is up and flying in the air. Because um, sometimes you got to reboot things a few times before they wake up. Yikes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's like <laughs> being, being, being your own IT department, again, like for the smaller studios, 
uh, or individuals. It's, yeah. No, even the big studios, though, they're rebooting. They're yeah, rebooting, they're rebooting, but they but have people. To re- they have people to reboot. <laughs> yeah, but there's still a room full of people waiting for that rig to come back up. Absolutely, uh, a room full of people as opposed to like yeah. just me. <laughs> but yes, yeah, definitely yeah. the technology. Uh, it's, it's bleeding edge with uh, on the high end of it. There's just a lot. It's, it's what four simultaneous computers going, you know, and, and they're passing hundreds of channels of audio back and forth in real time through the whole thing, mm-hmm. and then getting to the speakers. Yeah, you know, I that's mean, before it, they go to the speakers. It's yeah. an impressive feat. I mean, when it works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But then that that spaceship flies, and you're like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's worth it. It's all worth it. <laughs> Is there anything we haven't covered? Should we talk about actual like session management, like organizing files within the session, or? I mean, not really. Put your objects in object tracks. You don't have to, but it's still a good workflow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, something I know Glenn and I have been working on is just like object allocation, like looking at the different effects pre-dubs and deciding how many objects we actually need, how many mono, how many stereo, and music, like how many objects are we actually going to use. Yeah. Right, and, and for most projects, like are you realistically going to use any dialogue as objects? Depending on the project, you mm-hmm. may or may not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mix time comes down to how much. I mean, you can you can use a lot of objects without having to move them around. You can just take things and put them in objects and put them up and leave them there. That's really good for atmos- uh, for ambiences and also for music. Yeah. Oh yeah, you know you can just put put music stems up in objects, put them in place, and you're done, right? So you don't have to do spend a lot of time panning. Mm-hmm. Um, but the things that you do have to spend a lot of time panning, it's it's worth taking the time to crash them down. Mm-hmm. You good? Yeah. yeah. High five, everybody. <laughs> We're good. <Hey. laughs> Thank you very much for sitting down with us today. This has been a very interesting talk, and it's a giant topic. So we've only kind of scratched the surface, so maybe uh, in a year we all get back together and <laughs> figure out what else we figured out. <laughs> what fools we were. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this podcast is in an atmosphere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thanks, everybody. Awesome. Filmbenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 